Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist, Gynaecologist and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. And today, in this episode of The Sex Tapes, we welcome back Chantelle Otten. Today, we're going to talk about sexual concerns, things that might come up more commonly than we realise and may not know that there is help available. Yes. So this is a question that I ask my patients routinely whenever I see a couple seeking help with fertility because it's important to have sex to get pregnant uh, for most people. It's it's not the only way and we can certainly help lots of patients who um, don't have to actually have sex to get pregnant in the IVF world. But in terms of natural conception, which is everybody's plan A, you do have to be able to actually make love and have sex around ovulation so that you can conceive a baby because that's the way our biology created us. In terms of the question that I ask, I ask if if women have sexual pain or sexual difficulty and I ask men if they have any sexual difficulties. I ask, are you able to have sex when you want to? And quite commonly the answer is no. Wow. Interesting. And what do they usually bring up with you? So it's it's a huge spectrum. So from the male side of things, often being asked to perform on demand, especially around ovulation, can be psychologically quite difficult. And mm. we're all putting off having babies until a little bit later in life. That also includes the guys. And mm. while men make sperm every day of their life after puberty, they can, as they get older, find it much more difficult to have a a normal libido or a high libido. Uh, They can find it difficult to get and sustain an erection and there's also Mm. ejaculatory problems that can compound difficulties in, in getting pregnant. So you can't make the assumption and not ask the question as to whether a couple are capable of having sex every second day around the period of ovulation because there's quite a few couples who can't and that's part of the problem. There's also the female side of things where there's a whole lot of conditions in gynecology that have overlap in terms of infertility and also pelvic pain Mm -hmm. and sex can be really difficult for women if they have Uh, had endometriosis or have active endometriosis Mm. that causes pain or has even been completely excised but has left a pelvic pain syndrome. And there are also women who've had adverse sexual experiences in their past making it difficult for them because of conditions like 
vaginismus and I've had some very motivated couples in my practice that we've been able to manage together to try and overcome these kind of problems but it's it's by no means a quick fix. So yeah. sexual difficulties all around across the board, male and female, can play a really important part in a couple's infertility. Yeah, which is, I guess, where I come into the picture because it's my job to help these people um, get over these sexual concerns or find ways around them. I call them like little bumps in the road. They don't have to be a huge deal, but of course, when we're trying to make a baby, they can become quite um, a concern. Um, whereas if we're just having sex for pleasure, sometimes it doesn't really matter if these concerns are there because we're just in there to have fun. Sexual concerns are only a problem if they are distressing to the individual or to the couple. So we should go through a few of them, I think, and maybe describe them a little bit to the listeners. Let's start with men, because we talk so much about women on this podcast. What are some of the concerns that men might come to you with? Absolutely. So performance anxiety, which is the first thing that we spoke about earlier in this segment. So just that feeling of, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to perform. Am I going to be able to get an erection? Am I going to be able to ejaculate when I need to ejaculate? Am I going to be early or am I going to be delayed? So early ejaculation is when you, as a, as a person with a penis, uh, ejaculate before you actually wanted to. They used to say, oh, if you, you know, ejaculate under 30 seconds, that's a premature ejaculation. But actually, premature ejaculation is just when you ejaculate before you want to ejaculate. And of course, it usually happens quite early. The most severe form is ejaculation prior to entering um, a vagina or an anus. But of course, um, it can happen when uh, penetration has occurred as well. And that can be quite distressing because it's difficult for a lot of couples to be able to move past that and to be able to pick up the momentum and to get over that psychological, I guess, feeling of failure a lot of the time of, you know, I haven't made this an enjoyable experience for both of us because I finished so early. And that can lead to, of course, a lack of desire um, and difficulties with communication and shame and performance anxiety. Erectile dysfunction is also another problem. So that can be something that um, a person with a penis can have for their entire sexual life. So it means they have a primary problem with erectile dysfunction. They're not able to get a, a hard penis or they are able to achieve some hardness, but it may go away after a very short period of time or prior to penetration. Or it might be something that's come on a little bit later in life. Maybe they've gone through some stressful period. Maybe they're not able to get a hard erection with the medications that they're on or any health concerns that they're experiencing. Maybe they have gone through prostate cancer. Or maybe there is just some difficulties within the relationship as well. Um, these can all impact on, a, on an erection and these can all impact on a couple's um, erotic experience, of course. But you don't need to have an erection to have a great time, remembering that um, you're able to build up erections, remembering that, and probably not remembering, a lot of people don't know this, those with a penis can actually um, have an orgasm, have ejaculation without having an erection. So if you play with the penis and you stimulate it enough and you, you know, maybe massage it or wank it, then it's going to still get an orgasm and it's still going to ejaculate even though it's not hard. 
What we want to look out for with those kind of difficulties, if that person is still getting morning erections or night erections, are they still able to get morning erections? Because that usually means that from a physiological point of view, so from a body point of view, things should be working quite all right. And of course, we want to get that double checked by um, a urologist or a men's health professional. But Usually that means that there are some kind of psychological elements coming into play here that are maybe, you know, saying, hey, this isn't working so well, or I'm a little bit scared, or I'm a little bit stressed. And that means the erection is just going, all right, I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to go back to sleep because obviously this isn't a pleasurable circumstance here. Now, every person with a penis will get erectile difficulties at some point. They might lose their erection at some point. Maybe they've had too much to drink and it's not working. That doesn't mean that you've got erectile dysfunction. It has to be going on for a decent period of time every single time that you're having sex for it to be an actual problem. Losing it once or twice really isn't a concern to me. However, it does become a concern to those who have the penis because they feel like they're broken. You know, it's kind of like women who have sexual pain. I'm not working. I can't get it to work. I'm the one who's causing the problem here. And that's when it can become a lot more psychological. And that's when I really have to get in there and talk about it with that person. And I think you're really hitting the nail on the head there, Chantal, when when you talk about the psychological sequelae, because Mm. fertility issues are complicated. And quite commonly, there's more than one problem and there's sometimes more than one underlying biological problem which is why things aren't happening quickly but Mm. then as things are not happening quickly our reaction to that situation and a couple's relationship impacts of that situation can further compound their difficulty by bringing in an element of what we call sexual dysfunction or Mm. just being unable to have sex when they want to. I guess one other thing just to point out with erectile problems, particularly if, as Chantal mentioned, they do affect every aspect of erectile function, is that that can be a canary in a mine shaft in terms of an early indicator of underlying vascular disease. So mm. it does take a healthy vascular system to have an erectile reflex. Mm. And one of the reasons that that might not be working prob- properly can be blood vessel disease or mm. cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease that causes erectile problems can also put you at increased risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. And there are lots of things that can be done to intervene to try and reduce that risk for a man so um, or person with a penis. So in terms of having a general health check or having a general physical or physician involvement, that's something that is always imperative for a man who has a acquired and all-pervasive erectile dysfunction. Yeah, absolutely. So if we talk about vascular systems, that's talking about the vessels that carry blood through the body. That is what really makes sure that you continue to move, that you're able to keep, you know, moving in life. And if we are starting to get problems with erections for males, then often that means that there might be some maybe narrowing of the arteries or vessels or maybe some kind of disease in there that's, that means that it's very hard for the heart to push the blood around the body back to where it needs to be, which is why uh, the penis is having some difficulties because it's getting a little bit difficult to push the blood to that area. 
So definitely a great idea to have a checkup with a healthcare professional. Maybe have two, get a second opinion as well. I think it's always worth um, making sure that we cover all bases. But, you know, as you get older as well, if you have a penis, you're going to start getting erectile difficulties anyway. At age 40, you have a 40% chance of having some erectile difficulties. Age 50, a 50% chance, 60, 60% chance. So what I ask people to do is actually not focus too much on the hardness of the penis. Of course, we want to be able to have it hard enough to be able to penetrate to conceive a child. But, you know, a bit later in life, we start having sex for more fun, you know, not to have to have that penetration all the time we just want to play around as much as possible and enjoy the sensations and enjoy the pleasure and of course have a really good um, sense of humor around your sex life too because as women get older we get you know menopause and that just wreaks havoc on all of us and uh, and our vagina gets a dry and it gets a bit sore so to be honest we don't really want you to have erections if, you're, <laughs> if we're getting to that age <laughs> we don't mind having out a as well because it might be a little bit difficult for us at some stage um, and it's really just about negotiating if you are in a heterosexual relationship how do you have fun without putting pressure on to have to achieve the same sex life that you did when you were younger now delayed ejaculation is something that we also need to speak about yeah let's talk about that yes definitely I don't think I've ever heard that spoken about Really? Well, a delayed ejaculation is something that is, you're right, it's not spoken about enough, but basically it's, it just refers to the difficulty or the complete inability of a person with a penis to reach orgasm and to ejaculate semen. And that can be because of physical causes or psychological causes. Um, and if it takes longer than 30 minutes after penetration or after, you know, stimulating the penis, despite having a, a hard penis, um, that's when we consider it to be delayed. Um, a lot of the time it's not really a problem unless you're trying to conceive because you can keep going and have fun and your penis is still hard. It's just that you won't ejaculate. However, it does tend to come a problem for couples when the person that the the penis is having sex with goes, well, why aren't you having an orgasm? You know, why aren't you ejaculating? Is it me? Am I the problem? Does this ever happen? And it gets compounded because of the, you know, media representations of what sex is meant to be. And that's it. You know, there's meant to be these huge orgasms. There's meant to be semen everywhere. And to be honest, it's just not the case for delayed ejaculation. It just takes a long time or it you know, it doesn't work at all. And that's completely okay. Yeah, I've had couples who've had this struggle to get pregnant where a man can ejaculate manually. Yes, he's been practicing his whole life, mm. but he can't ejaculate with his partner in sex. Mm. And that can be problematic when you're trying to conceive. And, you know, one of the advice points I give couples in these circumstances, you can actually use a little bit of equipment and do self-insemination. So if a man can ejaculate into a sterile container like what we use for a urine sample, that can be immediately drawn up. The semen can be immediately drawn up with a syringe and inserted vaginally mm. uh, for couples in this circumstance who are who are trying to conceive. But I tend to refer these couples to see you, Chantal, for yeah. their own benefit, not so much necessarily for the mechanics of it. Like it's important to have sex to get pregnant, but you know, if you can ejaculate, 
you know, you can self-inseminate and it's pretty much as good from a fertility perspective. Mm. In terms of their enjoyment of their sex life though and their confidence in themselves and in each other, my tools to help them are limited in, in, in my capacity. I can get them pregnant. I can take the sperm and do <laughs> artificial insemination or IVF. Uh, yeah. But in terms of their enjoyable sex life and what they want, tell us what, what would you do to try and help a couple in that circumstance? Yeah, so the first thing that I tend to do is really look at these masturbation techniques that the person with a penis has been using. You know, how hard is the grip on their penis? How often are they masturbating? What type of stimulation are they using? You know, if they've been watching pornography for 20 years and that's what they use to stimulate their mind, then usually having a realistic sexual experience might not hit that spot that they need to be able to feel erotic enough to ejaculate. It's what Dan Savage calls the death grip. The death grip, yes. The death grip can cause problems with erections. The death grip can cause problems with ejaculation. But also a lot of the time um, it, it might just be that it's hard for that person to reach that ejaculation. So I really talk about working as a team together to make sure that there's no performance anxiety coming into it, that there's no shaming of the person who has the penis who's finding it difficult to ejaculate. Because, you know, I, I think it goes to say that a lot of women find it very difficult to reach orgasm. A lot of those with vulvas find it very difficult to reach orgasm. And I would hope that there's not much shaming around that anymore, even though I know that it's out there. We really have to think of the person with the penis as well and have some empathy because it's not a nice experience for either of you to feel like you're broken or that you're causing problems. Who cares if you ejaculate or not? As long as you can get pregnant in, in you know, like Rayleigh is saying, there's, there's ways to do that then we really don't need to be having that, um, that orgasm and that ejaculation. I think it's also what you talk about, Chantelle, in terms of being really goal-focused and really task-oriented. So I think for women, you know, when you're trying to conceive particularly, the task is to make the sperm and egg come together and mm. women aren't necessarily focused on their orgasm or their pleasure. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of added bonus, but they've kind of ticked the box and done the task if they've had sex around ovulation. Whereas mm. for men, it's kind of like all or nothing, like it's all inbuilt. They have to achieve that desire and they have to achieve that kind of psychological side of it. It's not just kind of lie back and think of England for the mm. guy. So, mm. yeah, I think it is, um, it is, it is important to have sympathy for, for, for partners in that situation. Totally. And often, to be honest, I'm able to help them reach um, ejaculation and to get the right methods around it because it, it might just be that they've been trying the wrong moves or that their head is not in the right place. So a lot of mindfulness techniques is something that I work with. So really allowing that person to get in touch with their body, get in touch with their penis, and of course, make sure that as a couple, that they are able to have an experience where they're not putting pressure on themselves or on each other. So yes, like you said, Rayleigh, I'm moving away from that goal-orientated point of view and just looking at sensation and pleasure and maybe banning them from watching pornography for a little bit and uh, masturbating for a little bit too. <laughs> now, if we look at a multifaceted approach, if we go to women and people with vulvas, there's quite a list of questions that I have here from listeners. I think we start with vaginismus because it's our most requested topic. 
And on our next episode of Sex Tapes, will be a focused conversation on the condition. So we'll just touch on it here, as listeners maybe haven't heard of it by name, but are familiar with the symptoms. How would someone be diagnosed with vaginismus? What would make them think to come and get some help? From a gynecological perspective, it's often a inability to either insert tampons or uh, to have sex or an inability to have, often it's an inability to have penetrative sex and or an inability to have pain-free penetrative sex and really for investigation for underlying physical factors and, you know, kind of organ-based factors that might be involved is where I get the referrals for, for vaginismus. What about you, Chantelle? Yeah, look, I actually get a lot of people come see me who have tried their best in the medical system to get a diagnosis. So they have ended up doing their own research because they've been through many specialists who don't know how to diagnose vaginismus because it is about the psychological history and sexual history um, of that person, which doesn't often get spoken about. So I know that Raylia sends me a lot of these referrals to work on the psychological side, but... I also find that there's a lot of practitioners who don't know how to diagnose that. And that's okay because it's not really spoken about a lot in the medical um, training. So basically, I get people who go, you know what, it hurts to have a pap smear. I've done research. I've heard you talking about it on podcasts. I've heard you talking about it on your Instagram. Um, And the way I like to explain it is that it, it sounds like Christmas of the vagina, but it's opposite. It's like Halloween. So we think about burning, singing-like sensations inside the vagina or like hitting a brick wall. So really difficult to have penetration. A lot of pain putting in tampons, avoidance of intimacy, avoidance of anyone going near their genitals because they are scared of that pain, which is quite excruciating. I've also had vaginismus before um, situationally because I I just wasn't enjoying the experience that I was in and so my body went you know what I'm going to protect you and my pelvic floor muscles went whoop and they tensed up and I experienced that that and it was extremely scary for me um, but made me a great practitioner because now I can really relate to my patients a lot more I think a lot of the time people go well how did I get this or do I have a thrush or do I have a UTI or have I got a a STI and no that's not the case basically what's happening is your pelvic floor so the muscles that surround your vaginal opening are tensing up so tight to protect you from pain a lot of the time we'll find that endometriosis patients will have this because it hurts to have deep penetration because of the scarring of the endometriosis lining and the pain the the body's just going, you know what, we have to protect these organs, so we're going to tense up and make sure that nothing can get in there to cause pain. It's like if I threw a pen at your eye, your eye would blink to make sure that you didn't get pain in your eye and the vagina is doing exactly the same thing. You're right. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of practitioners kind of hit their head against a brick wall with patients with vaginismus in the gynecology world is that gynecologists, you know, are surgeons, they're surgeons Mm -hmm. of the female kind of genital tract and Mm. there's certain problems we can fix surgically and others that we can't and functional problems often cannot be fixed surgically and the vaginismus kind of syndrome of pelvic floor overactivity it doesn't necessarily need to have an underlying physical pathology there for it to exist so you know sometimes you're right sometimes there are things like endometriosis which are a trigger Mm. but even in patients who endometriosis has been completely 
excised as best as a surgeon can, that mm. pelvic floor can remain hyperactive. And it's just like a kind of a link to this center in our brain which creates this this kind of vicious cycle where there was pain, there was a trigger, whether that trigger was endometriosis, whether that trigger was sexual abuse, whether that trigger was a, a bad thrush infection or, yeah, or whether Ooh. it's, you know, just kind of a fear or a phobia of, of pain. But, you know, some often there was a real pain, often there was at some point a real physical issue, but at the time where it becomes an ongoing functional issue, the original physical issue may not be there anymore, but the functional mm. issue can be become the problem when as originally it might have been a reaction to the problem. Totally. And, you know, I, I really feel empathy for anyone who is a healthcare practitioner who gets a young person coming in again and again and you're just not sure how to work with this problem because it is such a psychological problem, hence why, you know, my, I would say that 50% of my work is based around vaginismus. It's a real special interest of mine because I know that when I came back to Australia and I started talking to practitioners who had, you know, there wasn't many sexologists back then um, and now there seems to be a lot more, which is awesome. It's much more accessible and there's, a, you know, a resource for practitioners to be able to refer someone out to a specialist to work on the mind around this condition because it is such a psychological and physical condition so hence why I work with Euralia hence why I work with Dora the pelvic floor physio and also just working with the patient around their motivation because vaginismus is something that's actually very easy to fix it just takes motivation and it takes patience and it really is about um, me and the patient working together as a team against the problem so that they don't feel like they're alone and so that they don't feel like they're abnormal and they're the only one because one in five women will experience vaginismus at some point in their life. I was going to say one in five women is such a high statistic mm. that anyone who's experienced it should know there's plenty of support yeah. to be found. And I would say to, to you know women who are listening, if you are feeling like you can can um, relate to this and that you might have this concern. One of the things that I find is really meaningful and really helpful for patients is to build a team, but we need buy-in. So, you know, if I refer a patient to see someone like Chantelle for the psychological aspects of care, patient's best interest is at heart to involve an expert in that area, just as I am an expert in the gynecological side of things. Uh, I'm not an expert in the psychology side of things and the sexology side of things. So we really do need to work together and recognize that particularly vaginismus needs a biopsychosocial model and you do need all these members of the team if we're going to get you the best outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's also something to mention is that we're really, it shouldn't be costing you a huge amount of money to fix this problem. That's also the thing that I get worried about, that um, especially when the problem is mixed with a condition called vulvodynia, which is when there is pain on the vulva. So if you grab two fingers and you feel around your vaginal opening, in this, on the skin that's between the vagina opening and the legs, it, usually there will be pubic hair on there. If you feel discomfort with that, if you find it hard to wear tight clothes or to sit down for long periods of time or ride a bike, 
and there's, you know, stinging irritation there, then that's something that we also deal with a lot. And I think often what happens is when you're having those sensations, you might get recommended to put fatty ointment or a pain relief ointment on your vulva and hope that all the pain goes away. But what we actually need to do is really make sure that we have a, a thorough pelvic floor assessment and that we are, again, working as that team um, because spending lots of money on seeing a, a specialist and just putting on ointment is not going to work with these conditions. It is really about us trying to get you to reach your goal of not having painful sex and to not also be charging for appointments every single week. It doesn't actually need that. A lot of that work is done at home with our guidance. I've never heard of vulvodynia. Oh, haven't you? Oh, vulvodynia. Look, it's a complicated scenario. Again, often triggered by a lot of different things. Mm. Um, but again, you know, it's about pain pathways. Yeah. And we don't know everything about it. It's still a bit of a mystery sometimes. There's autoimmune conditions that are associated with vulvodynia. Um, it, it's really kind of like chronic irritation. Uh, and it can be also to do with pelvic floor overactivity. So it's mm. about the nervous pathway, whether they're appropriately or inappropriately sensitized and activated, and then regaining some control over what is an unconscious kind of area of the body. And just like I've, I've said before, you know, to patients, you know, you wouldn't expect if you were going to the gym for the first time to walk out as Sylvester Stallone with lots of rippling muscles you know it takes effort and it takes practice and it takes persistence and it takes real momentum and that has to come from within but you also need to know what you're doing and what to do and have that support um, so that you're moving in the right direction because you can train your pelvic floor up the wrong way and you can actually make it like that kind of Sylvester Stallone muscle that's impenetrable yeah so you really too many kegels do need the guidance Yeah, you need the guidance of a a pelvic floor physio so you get that biofeedback. And I think in the next episode that we talk about or the episode coming up where we really talk about vaginismus, we're going to go into more detail around this and also a little bit of a chat around yoni eggs and about, you know, Kegel work as well, so pelvic floor strengthening work. But we should really cover some more of these uh, female sexual concerns Yes, well, you touched on endometriosis, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but never in a sexual context. Mm. Raylia, could you briefly describe endo to us? So endometriosis affects one in 10 women, and it has a wide spectrum of how it can affect a woman. So it surgically, we stage endometriosis from stage one or two, where you have zero ultrasound evidence the ultrasound comes back as normal uh, but there's deposits around the pelvis of hormonally responsive tissue that inappropriately grow invade and become inflamed around the, the menstrual cycle particularly around the time of menstruation and it is a progressive condition in many women so you can start off with low grade endometriosis and over time it can progress and we call endometriosis stage three or stage four where it manifests by really grossly kind of changing the way the pelvic structures are causing adhesions causing endometriomas which assists in the ovary causing really kind of the potential spaces of the pelvis like the pouch of Douglas which is a space behind the uterus to become obliterated meaning Mm. destroyed because 
everything's stuck down. There's no space anymore. The bowel's stuck to the back of the uterus or the ovaries and tubes are stuck to the back of the uterus. And really severe endometriosis, there's, it's a, it makes the pelvis a really hostile place and a really inflammatory place. And the majority of the time that I interact with patients with endometriosis is when they're seeking to get pregnant. Mild endometriosis can be a factor in reducing the chance of a woman getting pregnant. It's not a complete deal breaker. There will be patients who have mild endo who can get pregnant naturally and there will be patients who have severe endo who don't have any pain at all and present when they've had trouble getting pregnant and we do a scan and it looks absolutely terrible. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that doctors can be a bit bamboozled and it can take a long time, mm. statistically up to seven years for a woman to get a diagnosis of endometriosis. And that's because endometriosis does not behave itself. It doesn't present in the same way all the time. It's very, very varied. And some people have extreme pain and very minimal disease and other people have no pain and very severe disease. So it's it's a very complex condition and we have imperfect understanding of it up to this time. So usually what we see when when it comes to penetration and endometriosis, pain during sex tends to occur because the penetration and other kind of movements, even in the rectal area, can pull and really stretch on that scarred and inflamed tissue, especially if it was grown um, behind the vagina or the lower uterus. And that can make it extremely uncomfortable and can cause reverberated pain after sex as well that lasts for a while because of the inflammation, um, which can be distressing. But there are ways around it. There are ways to, of course, have a really healthy sex life when you've got endo. And that's something that I help so many people with because we really do focus on making sure that we control the level of penetration so we I have a few tools and contraptions to use to help with that that are not uncomfortable that won't take away from the erotic experience we work a lot on how to have an erotic outer course life as well so making sure that if we are having inflammation if we're having a flare-up that we're not having penetration and navigating that and also just making sure that things are beyond the the kind of usual spectrum of what we speak about, you know, that we are looking at sex from an expansive point of view, not a rigid point of view. Earlier on, you also mentioned deep pain. Where does deep pain occur? Well, I suppose when we, we talk about sexual pain, you know, very grossly, we separate it to superficial and deep. And when we talk about superficial pain, we're talking about things like skin-related discomfort or vaginismus where we can't actually achieve penetration and pain happens on the outer layers of the vulva or around the opening of the vagina. And that can also happen with menopause and whatever state results in estrogen depletion. So, for example, in patients who've had breast cancer and we take away their estrogen as part of their adjuvant therapy, you know, that can also be a big problem. doesn't happen just to women after the menopause. And in terms of deep penetrative discomfort, so that's when a woman is able to have sexual penetration, she feels lubricated and there's no problem in physical insertion of a penis or dildo or what have you. But when that does contact the cervix or the uterosacral ligaments behind the cervix, pain ensues uh, or referred pain from, from the pelvis ensues which is deep pain. What's its official name? Dyspareunia? Yeah. 
another word for deep pain is dyspareunia, which just means pain during sex. And of course, like Raylia was saying, that also might just be down to the, the positions that we're using, the depth of uh, the penis or the dildo going into the vagina, where it's hitting, if it's tapping on the cervix as well. For some people, they find that really pleasurable. For some, they find that really uncomfortable. So what I tend to do is really look at the positions that they're using to also make sure that their pelvic floor again is relaxed and not too tense in that area, that they are able to breathe into the sexual experience because people stop, stop breathing when they're nervous and that can also cause problems with pain and that there is enough lubrication or that we use a device to control the depth of penetration as well. Another topic that we wanted to talk about is after a woman's had a termination of pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy or an STI for that matter as well, some kind of event that has caused physical and psychological grief and trauma and then develops pelvic pain or or sexual problems. Can you talk to us of your experience of these things? Yeah, I think that this, uh, the topics that can cause this discomfort, this psychological pain as well, are usually isolated experiences that that person doesn't have anyone to talk about with. We have to remember that sometimes terminating a pregnancy can be a very lonely experience. Sometimes it can be things like shame. Losing a a baby can be so psychologically difficult that our body just kind of shuts down and it really goes into survival mode instead of living. And we call it flight, fight, or freeze. And when we have that fight, flight, or freeze in our body, it's our shoulders and our pelvic floors that really contract. So what we need to do is work on the mind and really give a safe space for that person to talk about it. And what I like to do is actually tell people to stop having penetration for that period of time and to be able to really work with, if they have a sexual partner or a romantic partner, really talk about what they're going through and share with them, you know, because I think with these experiences, vulnerability could go into lockdown a little bit because we just don't want to face these these challenges, these psychological hurdles. We just want to keep moving. We're brave. We're strong. We've got things to do. We've got to hold ourselves together. And unfortunately, our body starts telling us that, hey, you actually need to have a rest for a little bit and we need to stop putting pressure on the body. So I get a lot of, I really strip back sexuality to just touching, not even genital focus because the genitals can hold pain, psychological pain and trauma. So really making sure that we allow them to have an intimate and romantic life, but probably not really tapping into that eroticism at that time, really looking at safety, really looking at love, really looking at connection as well, because that area, that genital region and breasts and stomach even can really tie into trauma and trauma is stored in the body it you know whilst realistically in our minds we know it's finished maybe we get touched in an area that used to hold a baby or that was you know assaulted and it's like a string that pulls us back to that negative horrible experience and it is something that I that can take a long time to be able to move on from but it's a lot easier when you have people on that journey with you. Chantelle, another topic that I wanted just to ask you about 
because this is very close to my heart, mm. is couples who have an infertility problem mm. that requires intensive intervention. So let's just say IVF. Mm. Uh, and the kind of reproduction side of it and the, the science side of it really takes over their life and their also just their relationship. And unfortunately, there are so many couples that have over the years broken up in the context of difficult IVF journeys. It's a really mm. high stress time. What, yeah. what message would you give to couples who are going through this really physical, really invasive, really kind of medicalized time mm. where they're trying to fulfill their deepest desires to have a baby, mm. but to sustain their physical and erotic relationship during this yeah. time because it's not really the way they're having a baby. It's, it, it becomes again for pleasure, but they're, they're not feeling very pleasurable. Yeah. I really tell them to be kind to themselves because, you know, the, these type of interventions are invasive. You know, there's injections involved, there's hormones that are raging, there's time pressures, there's feelings of sometimes fear, feelings of failure sometimes. Um, and we are not that forgiving when it comes to ourselves, even though we're not in control of what happens. Um, when it comes to fertility, we can be kinder to ourselves and to our partners. So I actually tell them to take a load off and I teach them how to have fun sexual experiences or fun intimate experiences. If you're not feeling erotic, I completely understand that during that time. Why don't we just focus on giving each other a head massage or a back scratch while we're watching TV together or looking in each other's eyes or spooning at nighttime? I think that the problem is a lot of these couples tend to turn away from each other to, to save each other from the psychological pain that they're going through and not turn towards each other. Um, so I really try and give them the tools to do that. That's wonderful. You, you speak really beautifully on that. Thank you. Thank you. Another problem that couples might come into when they've been trying and trying and trying and trying to have a baby is diminished sexual desire or uneven sexual desire or mm. just sex on terms that are not the usual terms uh, yeah. of their relationship previously. What can we do to help? Well, look, I think in any relationship there will be a time where one person has a higher desire and one person has a lower desire. Hopefully there will be one person who's still motivated to try and have intimate experiences and is able to pick up that other person in a really kind way and say, hey, what can we do to improve here? Because desire will ebb and flow throughout the stages and ages of our lives and especially when we're going through st such stressful psychological things um, or if we just have too much on our plates. You know, we are in the middle of stage four lockdowns in Melbourne and whilst everyone was really excited to be having sex a lot during this stage, I don't think that there's many people that are really having erotic sex because we're around each other all the time we're not missing our sexual partners if they're if we're living with them and we're really focusing a lot on 
um, I guess, just trying to survive during this time. So I just give people the advice that if it is a persistent problem, if it is something that is really interrupting your quality of your sexual life, then that's when I come into play. If it is just a, per a period of time and you know, you know what, I'm sure that in a month or two, we're going to feel better. We're going to have some great conversations around this. Um, and it isn't impacting me too much right now because I know it's a phase, then just try and see how you go and in, try and invite some new fun things into the bedroom. Try and have a lot more ball play, you know, really try and have some intimacy with each other. But of course, if it starts becoming a distressing topic, then let's talk about it because there is, you know, everyone is going to go through low desire at some stage and it is going to impact the couple as well. Thank you so much, both Raelia and Chantel. I'm looking forward to our next episode together on vaginismus when we'll be joined by Dora Pandaloglu, who works with Chantel as a pelvic physio. I know, I'm so excited. It's my favourite topic, so it's going to be great. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of Knocked Up. For more information on the topics discussed today, we'll put some links in our show notes. And as always, you can find us on social media and online.